Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi, Katie. Hi, Erica. Happy Sunday. Yay. Welcome to Book Talk. Book Talk is your weekly podcast book club, and we are talking about the second section of Honor, which Katie is going to summarize for us. The third, the third section. section? Yeah. The third section. Look at us flying through this book. I know. It, it, we are flying through it. So in this section, we watch Mina and Abdul fall in love secretly and quickly, and her whole village then turns against her. She's has a blind I'm in love innocence to her that is quickly ruined when her family, her own blood, makes her walk over hot coals for being with a man who's outside of her caste and her religion. Once she heals with the help of her sister, she runs away to live with him. He is so sweet and caring. We can already see that they're going to build a lovely life together, but also that Ami is not going to be easy to live with. In contrast to this happy little story, back in present day, Smita and Mohan stop by Mina's house on their way out of town to await the verdict. They bring them food, even though it's against her journalistic morals, and visit with the family. Mohan and Smita then head to the coast to stay at his parents' house, and after he overhears a conversation with Smita and her dad, she finally tells him why she left India, and whew, that story is a lot. They get the news that the verdict is coming and prepare to drive back to Mina's hometown. I want to know what you think of this section because I feel like it was still a lot of buildup, but we there was still a lot more plot in here. It's just not present day plot. Present day things have kind of slowed down to a stall where you're just like waiting for this verdict. I still think that's going to be like the climax of the story, uh, but we do learn a lot about Mina's past and Smita's. It's a really heartbreaking section. It was a heartbreaking section. As it started, I realized that I'm a lot like Smita. I also realized that clearly her like independence and sort of standoffishness or defensiveness against India is clearly like a reaction to trauma that she's had. And I did not know the trauma that was coming. I was really moved by her section, obviously, and paired with the love story of Abdul who just seems like such an amazing man and so sweet and so just like love will conquer everything. Oh, the innocence and the like hopefulness that is inside Abdul is just beautiful. He's like, we can do it. It's okay. We'll be a new India. We will change the world. And he believes it. He believes whatever they have is enough. And it's so sad that it's not. It also establishes more of the pattern of how her family has treated her, how her brothers have treated Mina, and how it just was like a pattern of escalation. And yeah, yeah, her having to like walk over the coals, it was just like so heartbreaking. One of those like trial by fire things like if you're really a witch, then you'll float or if you're not, you'll sink. And like these like impossible weird tests that people have. Uh, I was definitely glued to the book when... Smita and her brother were taken by the men and like thrown out into the courtyard. Oh, oh. So there was a, really a lot in this section. So to break both those down, the Mina story first, the walking over the coals, I, it was awful to read, but her resolve in that moment, basically like if my own blood can do this to me, if my own family can do this, then 
she just became very sure of her decision and of her love for Abdul and of her getting out of there. It made her more confident that this is not right. This is not honorable or loving or any of these things. And I feel like in that awful situation, she was very clear about what she believed. Um, so being able to get that through that horrible story was impressive. And then Smita and her brother, my heart dropped when she called the neighbor kid because you're just a kid. You're so, you're so innocent. You don't understand. People aren't telling you. And you just, you could never comprehend that. Explain to a kid that you can't call your neighbors because they won't accept you or agree with you or, or allow anyone to come play with you. You can't explain these decades of religious conflict to like a 10 or 12 year old, however old she is, and expect her to understand it. She doesn't get it. She's like, that's my friend. That's my auntie. That's, of course they would help me. Of course they would want to come over. Of course they know we're right across the street. It's not a big deal. And just you're reading that and you're like, she does not understand the gravity of the situation. And the fact that she kind of put them all at risk and is living with that guilt too. I was, I am curious if we'll know more about her relationship with her brother now. Obviously, he has her nephew, right, Alex? That's, I'm assuming that's her brother's kid. And so they clearly are are still close, which is amazing because in this section it seems like I don't know how they're going to get through this. I forgot she had a brother. I kind of forgot she had a brother, but I remembered the nephew. Okay. So I'm assuming that's her brother's kid, but yeah. I definitely want to know more about her relationship with her brother it's also so sad when she's talking to her dad and it's like, I know you miss mom and it's hard for you to go out, but I'm glad you did it. And he succeeded against some pretty insane odds of like getting them out of India, getting them settled in America, raising two kids who seem to be successful. Mm-hmm. It's going to be so hard to be him though, because you're doing all of this. You're, I mean, he's staying up day and night trying to get them out of this horrible situation that has come about because of his writing and his work and his, his education. And you get there and the kids are not, they're kids, right? So they don't understand the gravity situation. And now they're like mad at you because you have taken them out of all their friends and their life and their country. And you settled them in some, in rural Ohio. And they're, they're not grateful in the beginning. They're like, this is the worst thing you could have done for us. And as a parent, how do you explain the horrors that you're leaving with, without trying to like re-traumatize your kids. Like there's no easy way to do what he did. He seems also like such a gem of a human who's just trying to, and that whole situation when they basically make him get down on his knees and he's begging and converting. I mean, it's all just so traumatic. And this man is obviously knows this is not, he knows these people are, they're acting barbarically right in this situation. And they're, treating him completely unfairly, but he has to go with it because the consequences are that they won't survive. Even though he knows it's wrong. He's like, I literally study this for a living. I know why you're doing it. And I still don't understand as it's happening to me. And also I know more about your religion than you do. Like I can tell you how this is so not what. Yeah. Like intellectually I get it. And you are not following what you are saying you're following, but nobody wants to have that argument. You're this religion that they're following the way that they're following this religion is based in fear and lack of understanding in not in logic. I also feel very, that scene was really intense for me personally as well. So I was part of a like pretty intense religious group, albeit they were Christian in America And when I was reading that, I think we read 
what they did to her and like being outcast and like nobody standing up and nobody saying this is wrong. But I was excommunicated, cut out, and everybody was like, yeah, no, that's the right thing to do. Don't talk to Erica. Cut off your relationship with Erica. That's the right thing to do. And this is actually the loving thing to do because Mm -hmm. this is what's going to help them make the right religious decision, which is fucking insane. Yeah. And I actually, it was really helpful to read this section to like process that and be like, they're doing this because they think it's like loving. They think it's right. It's so obviously not right. And yet at the time, even the people I was like closest to, my closest friends, all did it. They all called me and said, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you anymore. We can't be friends. You can't be part of my life. I didn't do anything to them. I didn't hurt anybody. I just had a crisis of faith and was changing what I believed and they cut me out. And it just reminded me that whole scene. I feel like we can read that and be like, nobody does that. That wouldn't happen in America. And it does. It It happened. It's so sad. Do you think it comes from a place of almost like brainwashing to believe that, that this is how you love somebody and this is what's right. And then you are kind of, do people kind of stop thinking for themselves outside of it because of fear or just, lack of exposure to other things or like how can people who I'm only asking so I think you've probably done a lot of work thinking about this too is like what do you think was motivating them to call even you in that situation and be like cutting you off or to not say anything do you think it's fear or do you think it's like that they truly believe they're doing the right thing they truly believe they're doing the right thing and I think I I'm not a religious person anymore I can understand how at its core religion has good things but the way it has been used is to like divide people and to have power over people to like tell them to do certain things and not other things and yeah to like control their behavior essentially so I think in a lot of ways it has been weaponized to do that for sure I think there are obviously sex and groups of people who believe in a more tolerant way and who are part of a religion and who use it to do good in the world. Obviously there's, there's both sides to it, but a lot of times it has been weaponized as well, which is so upsetting. I think this is the thing about the, the honor killings, you know, all of this is like, they truly believe this is, he says it multiple times, look, this is my, this is my Dharma. This is, you have to like, this is my honor. This is my religion. This is what I believe. You can't convert back all, you know, do you see all of this? They truly believe it's the right thing. But um, I was reading a review or something about this book somebody had written. They said they're trying to uphold honor, but there's no honor in intolerance. There's no honor in hate. There's no honor in, like, killing another human being. Um, but it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you can't see that when you're doing it, when you're that but brainwashed. I don't, and I don't think that they think what they're doing. That's the, like, that's the upside down world. And I, like, I think they genuinely think this is the right thing to do for the truth, for God, for good reasons, for moral reasons. And that's why it's like, oh, well, that it's like hate has no place here. And you're like, yeah, as long as you're doing exactly. It's a very weird, like, mind game, essentially. Right. Yeah, hate has no place here, but we're not hating you. We're just following out what we're supposed to be doing. It's not that we want to do this, it's that we have to. I, yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about. And you do usually have somebody in power who is directing it and everybody is sort of following that person. And when everyone around you 
is saying the same thing, it seems impossible to ask, why wouldn't this be true? Right? We see this with um, Mina throughout this section when she's falling in love with Abdul. It's like, no, absolutely not. You're beneath me, essentially. And I can't talk to you. I can't touch you. I can't accept a gift from you. And she needs somebody outside of her bubble to say, like, why? What do you mean? That's like, no, of course not. Like, it's fine. I love you. I'm I'm not coming from a, a bad place. I'm here to help you and to help you see the world differently. And she does. She like immediately her eyes are open and she sees what she's coming from, what she's lacking, the love that is lacking in her own family, who is supposed to be the ones loving her and who are supposedly protecting her and wanting what's best for her, but how it's actually not what's best for her. One other thing from this section I really like is that when you have a traumatic experience or you go through something like this, you can hold a lot of the beliefs and the weight of those. And like it can be unburdened by telling your story just by talking about it with Mohan. And he's like, how could you like she's like, I'm so guilty. Like, I can't believe I did that. I put my family. We could have died. And he's like, what do you mean? You're a kid. Like, she just needed someone else to hear the story, and by hearing it, she can reinterpret it and and look at it differently and realize, hopefully, to some extent, it's not really her fault what happened. Totally. I do think even just bringing things into the open and talking about them does change them. It changes your perception of them. It changes how much weight they hold, I think, essentially what you're saying, too. So I totally agree. I think talking about it when you're in your own holding all that guilt or whatever it is inside you and you're not talking about it and you're not processing it with other people or thinking about it, you just, you only have one perspective and it's usually not the, it's usually the worst one because it's your hardest on yourself too and on what you could have done. So I think her, even just talking about that is going to help her heal so much. I love this like budding friendship or deeper relationship with her and Mohan. I'm sure you hate it. <laughs> no, I like it. I, oh, I was like watching you do this face. And I was like, is she going to say she hates it? But I do. What do you think about it? I like Mohan a lot. He seems a very, like a very interesting, thoughtful, empathetic person who is helping her learn more about herself. And that's all you can ask for in a relationship. I think they're both helping each other to kind of open their eyes to the other perspectives. And she, I like too that she's not just doing it in the, in the way that Smita's character is written too. She's not just making Mohan. She has a lot of mixed feelings about it, right? She wants him to see India how she saw India. She wants him to feel how she felt when she was here and how ostracized she felt when she left. But she also doesn't want him to lose the beauty that he, you know, what he holds and how he sees India. She wants him, she has a lot of different feelings that are happening. I feel like it's very realistic how she's kind of grappling with that. Also recognizing, they both recognize this is an impossible relationship that yeah. can't happen, won't happen, it's not going to work, which makes me think that they're going to make out anyway. <laughs> I mean, might as well, right? There's Why nothing not? sexier than like, we can't. So we should. We must. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I love it. Also seeing him with Mina's daughter, Abru, oh. is that her name? Yeah, Abru. Oh, I know. I'm. He's just. So I was sweet. turned on by. That, okay, okay, right. <laughs> Be, uh, he's so sweet with her and playful, and just, he's able to connect with people so easily. I, of all different, he figures out what people need, and I think that's such a 
cool talent and people to be like, here is Ami and here's what she needs to open up and feel comfortable. Here's how I play with the kid. Here's how I can make Smita feel like here's how I can interact and connect with or find commonality with all of these different, all these different people. I do feel like he is such a soft spot too. And I, I don't know if I could do what Smita does. And she's like, these are my journalistic morals. I can't bring the food to them. And Mohan's like, okay, then don't, but he's going to, but it would be so hard for me to not to want to give everything to Mina and Ami and Abru. Like I don't know how Smita doesn't do it. And I don't know how you balance wanting to like save everyone and fix everything and helping people with doing such a small thing that isn't going to last either. That reminds me of this other podcast series called The Trojan Horse Affair, which is about one of the journalists and producers from like serial and then like from the serial productions team and a journalist student who is a Muslim in Great Britain. And they are trying to get to the bottom of this complex letter that came out accusing people of indoctrinating Muslim teenagers and through extremism, et cetera. Anyways, it was like a, a neighborhood drama story. And it, it all centers around this letter and they're trying to figure out who wrote the letter because all this like legislation happened as a result of it. And the younger, newer journalist who is Muslim and British has a really hard time with the lines basically that you're supposed to have as a journalist. And that was my favorite part of this series is seeing how he was grappling with not being able to express your opinion, being objective at all costs, not getting affected by this story because he was affected by this story. And he was interviewing people who were telling him that they think Muslims are bad people and they don't trust them and they don't deserve to be in leadership positions. And how, like, how do you endure that? It's like, I, I, and what do you lose to have that objectivity? To like yeah. shut off that part of yourself. yeah. What do you lose in that story, and what kind of discourse are you also missing out on by being completely objective in that? And who is able to kind of come in and be unaffected by these stories? Right. Highly recommend that podcast series if you're interested. If that's an interesting topic to you, I still want to talk about this helping people but not being able to do anything. I don't know. I guess all I want to say to wrap that section up is just it has to be so hard to see such hard stories of people who are dealing with so much more, you know, day-to-day issues than Smita is and not being able to just pick them up and save them to give them all the food and help they could ever need for their whole life. Um, it's got to be so hard to see these stories and just report on them and not be able to to fix it. I feel like I don't think I could do that. I would want to fix everything. Well, yes, obviously. Let me argue the other side of the point that I just made about objectivity. But the having objectivity, telling someone's story in that way without blurring the lines where you guys are friends, you're bringing them money, they're giving you get whatever. There's like no exchange. Then it allows people supposedly to like trust that story and hear that person's story And that can be more helpful than here's $5. Here's like a meal. Like hopefully when Smita writes this article, if she does, it's going to bring attention to this case. And that in the end 
will hopefully be more helpful than just like a small bribe, which could invalidate the whole story or like a small token of affection or whatever. I'm just like, can't we do both? Can't we believe this one's story and get it out there and also give her enough food and water for a month? Why? (laughs) I mean, this is they do this in consulting. Like you are absolutely not allowed to accept a dinner, to accept a favor, to accept gifts from potential clients. Like it's just it's a slippery slope from there to being involved for changing the outcome for not appearing objective i get it i just this is why i can't i mean this is why i'm not a journalist <laughs> this is why you're in that's why you work in a nonprofit. yeah this is why okay right you want to help yeah this yeah. checks as on brand for me then i feel like this is exactly why i work in a situation and we still struggle with this obviously being at a nonprofit because even in a more extreme way i was just talking about this this week uh, with my friend about how we have kind of a section of our company that feels a little bit more grassrootsy than the rest of us, which is becoming a little bit more corporate as we're growing. And there's this struggle between when you're a grassroots organization with no kind of regulations or anything around you, you can do whatever you want to do to help people. That is what you're doing. You're not receiving funding, so you don't have to follow any rules. But when you're part of an organization that does, receive funding. There are rules and regulations and most of them are in place to keep people safe, but it's hard because you're limited then on what you can do. And there's this pull between like how much good can we possibly do and having boundaries on it. And I think in any kind of nonprofit world or any kind when you're helping people and you want to do it on kind of a large scale, there is that pull of like, I want to do more, but there has to be boundaries. I think it's hard. Obviously this is something I struggle with in this book and in real life. From the technical side of this book, I'm surprised and struggling a little bit with the fact that it's really hard to picture what everybody looks like because 3D doesn't really describe what people look like at all. And I have a hard, actually have a hard time with that. I, I think I appreciate it on the one hand, but I want to know what Smita looks like. I want to know what... Abdul looked like I like I need more to sort of like have a good mental picture of each of the main characters that is fascinating I didn't really think about that until now but now I'm thinking I don't actually have a picture of anything inside my head except for Mohan and in my brain he's constantly wearing like a very well-fitted suit it's navy and some loafers and some loafers yeah it's a navy suit and he's with some light brown loafers but I don't know what anyone else looks like but I do have a picture of Mohan He's the only one we got a description of in the very beginning because he was picking her from the airport, but that's and it. And Shannon, because Shannon has red hair. Right. In my head, though, she's still blonde. So I do feel like we're not getting a lot of descriptors about the people, but a lot of descriptors about the city. The last thing I want to ask you about is this balance. And I think we talk about this with this story and we've talked about other stories too and bad Muslim discount being one of them. But I want to know how we what you think about how we find the balance between opening people's eyes to what is what are true stories and what is happening in you know in India and in these small towns in America all over but this story specifically in India especially if people don't read a lot about that culture and this is kind of their first introduction or one of their first introductions how do we balance opening people's eyes to what's happening around the world with the way their eyes are being opened through just these horrifying stories and there isn't a lot of like fiction showing the other side of it that is accessible to people This book does a good job of showing sort of the opposite of the story that I think we're more used to hearing, which is like the Muslim extremist religions to now, in this case, the Muslims are the persecuted religion, which 
definitely happens. I remember talking to someone about Buddhist extremists who are violent and they were shocked. And it's like, yeah, extremism looks the same. It's like there's almost nothing about the actual religion. All religious groups have people who are on the extreme end of that religion who will do anything for that particular group. And it's much more about like the nature of being a human than it is like essential to that religion in particular. There's lots of violence, religious violence in the Christian Bible. So it's, <laughs> uh, so I, I do like that we're seeing the other side of the way Muslims are usually portrayed in the media. And I think we have a good balance of characters throughout this book who are on, who are Hindu, who are Muslim, who are sympathetic, who are not sympathetic, who are good actors, who are bad actors that we're sort of seeing in a really nice, small world that there's good people and bad people on all of the sides of these lines. Agreed. I do think she does an excellent job casting these characters from all different perspectives and making you empathetic to kind of all of the big sides of the story. And it's a balanced, it's more balanced now that we've gotten to this third section, why Smita is the way that she is, why Mina is the way that she is. The only person whose story I feel that we don't really know is Mohan, but I am assuming we might not even get there. There's not much book left. And we still have questions about Shannon and Nandini. I want to know more about Mohan. I want to know more about Smita's brother. I want to know more about uh, her dad. So many stories I want to I want to learn more about in this section. I want to finish. I'm probably going to finish reading this book today or tomorrow. I, I cannot wait to know. I And I have, I have absolutely no guess about how the trial is going to go. I'm feeling weird vibes from Anjali. I'm feeling weird vibes from Mina with her sister. I'm like, what is happening? Yeah. I also, I have no idea what's going to happen. I feel like there are so many unanswered questions and I do feel like there, I have like chills of this tension that's built up and I'm nervous for how this is going to end. I am also probably going to go read it today. Um, I have to know what happens. Have to know what happens. I was curious as I was reading this this section, I felt like the stories were much more balanced and I was wondering if we didn't know more about Smita and the trauma that kind of led her to be how she is, if you would feel the same way you felt in some other books where the stories weren't necessarily balanced in how in the level of kind of depth in them. Um, but I think we got that depth to make them more balanced in the section from Smita. So I was thinking about you while I was reading it. Oh, <laughs> All right. There's a lot to talk about with this book. I know. Next week, we are finishing the book and we'll be joined by a special guest to talk more about the themes of the book. Also, as always, on our third episode of our book club book, we announce our next book club book club book. So you have plenty of time to get your copy of the book. And I'm so excited about this one. Talk about a change in tone. Yes, we are going to read Writers and Lovers by Lily King next. This is a portrait of a young woman who is blindsided by her mother's death and wrecked by a recent love affair. So rough time in her life. She's arrived in Massachusetts in 1997 with no plan. She's waiting tables at a small restaurant. She's working on her novel um, and she's trying to figure out kind of what to do next. She's falling for two very different men at the same time and trying to figure out how she's going to be fulfilled in her life as she does it. So we're following Casey in this story and we cannot wait to get started. 
We love a listless yet talented 30-something <laughs> trying to figure out what Oops. she's doing with her life. <laughs> That's a mood. We love it. <laughs> We're here with it. <laughs> All right. I can't wait. I'm excited to be in the 90s. I feel like a 1997 book. Feels great. I finished two books. I finished Disorientation, which I talked about last week. I Disorientation was like funny, pretty lighthearted. It's definitely something academics would love. I also enjoyed that the main character is coming to terms with being Asian American, what that means for her, what that means for her relationships in a way that's pretty funny. I think it wasn't anything that was particularly groundbreaking what she's kind of reckoning with but that's just because I'm like steeped in identity politics and like the study of people with multiple identities that being said I really liked it I found it really enjoyable I think it's like a good summer read it's funny it's quirky it's kind of bizarre and yeah I enjoyed it we love a summer read a little long you also keep thinking like, surely this is the end. No. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Kind of the plot that keeps going. It's the plot that never ends. <laughs> the other book that I read was Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. Oh, yeah. You talked about this too, but I did. we need a recap also. Holy <laughs> shit. I, there was a scene that I was reading on the subway and I genuinely was like, what? Like my face and my jaw dropped. And I was like, I know people are staring and I can't control myself. This is the craziest shit I've ever read. You can't give us any hint what it was about? No. I mean, you can kind of guess. So this story is about a mom who thinks she's turning into a dog. Right. Okay. Yeah. So just, we you know, think about what dogs do. Okay. Wild dogs. <laughs> okay it's so I'll let my mind go I, it's I like mean. pretty gruesome which is funny because I listened to immediately of course listened to a podcast of an interview with Rachel and she's just like the nicest suburban white woman living in Iowa who just wrote this crazy book about motherhood it reckons with what it means to be a woman and femininity and also how we treat mothers which is like women go through this insane sorry people go through this insane process of making a fucking human being that human being is like ripped out of their body in an extremely painful way and then we pretend and then they have this like insane love for their child that they will lift a car up to save them and yet we sort of infantilize moms and we treat them like their interests are not serious their concerns are not serious they can't really do anything they're not very competent that is what the book is arguing against is that 
her being treated in this way and talked down to is so insane when you think about how powerful and magical birthing people are and what they do, which is like the craziest thing that human beings can do, I think. And her rage, her rage at the system which treats her badly and her husband who is sort of not really there. But what I like about it is that's like the thesis, yet she loves her husband and she loves her son. And those two things are never questioned or changed really. And that's sort of novel, I think. I think in most like feminine rage books, you sort of turn against everyone and you especially turn against the men in your life. And she doesn't. She's mad at the system. She's not mad at her child who she loves very, very much and who is like awakened to this other side of her. I haven't finished a book since I finished Black Buck, which I loved. Uh, But I am reading four books right now, hoping to finish Two of them before the end of April. Honor is one of them I'm definitely going to finish today. Obviously, I'm reading for this, so I will at least meet my April goal here. I am reading 10 pages a day of On Earth, We Were Briefly Gorgeous. I'm just doing it on my lunch break, which is nice because it's like a little actual breather from work. But it's not a book I can get into and I care about the plot, but I do think that it's beautiful and I'm enjoying the, the poetic style of writing. But it's very different. It's like reading poetry. I think it awakens something in you every couple of paragraphs that that is beautiful, but it's not the story. It's not like reading a regular fiction book. That makes sense. I'm also reading Under the Whispering Door, the TJ Klune book still, uh, but I'm getting a little further into it. I think I'm like a third of the way done. I kind of like it. The books are about grownups. TJ Klune's books are about grownups, about adults, but I feel like they're also written in a very like magical kind of YA um way but they're also always grappling with much bigger issues so i'm also reading probably ruby it is about an indigenous woman who's adopted by white parents and it's really about her search of who she is throughout this whole novel we get flashbacks to her childhood we her life in her 30s where she's currently at and it is out of control there's a little bit of kind of group moment she's trying to sleep with her therapist she's she just is trying to figure out who she is and it's a full identity story character study. There are some parts that are really sad. Some parts that are hilarious. Some parts remind me of crazy chaotic stories about women that I've read before that I think are kind of funny. So, so far it's good. I feel like every time I read, I'm like, Erica's going to love this book. <laughs> so I'll give it to you. Um, it's written about, an, 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 wow. <laughs> it's written about an indigenous woman by an indigenous woman. Great. I'm right. I like it already. I know. It's I, I do think you're gonna love it. I don't know if I'm gonna love it yet, but so far it's keeping my attention and I love this story of her trying to find out who she is. Great. Well, okay. happy reading. I can't wait to hear what happens. I mean, I can't wait to know what happens. <laughs> I'm literally like Anjali's gonna call me any moment and tell me that I need to run down to the courthouse. And she's gonna be mediocrely nice about it when she does it. <laughs> Make sorry I'm busy. I have like way I more mean I'm doing paperwork. On. Can I answer your question tomorrow? How annoying. Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney. With production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. Okay, anyways. What did I read?